Father, we thank you for hearing our prayer. That, Lord, as we pray for the gospel to go through the nations of this world and to our neighbors in this community, you're hearing that prayer and answering it, and we praise you for it. God, thank you for Paul Evans and his family and, and the mission you've called him to be on. Lord, thank you for the safety in his journey and the travel that he was able to have. And Lord, I thank you for the way you heard and answered prayer by raising up new church planners, new church leaders in places like Uganda. And Lord, I pray for the church of Africa to be strengthened in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray that the request of those village leaders who aren't even followers of Jesus, that their request would be heard, Lord, by your heart, your ears, and the hearts of your people, that churches would be planted in those villages where there is no gospel presence so that Jesus would be proclaimed among every tribe and tongue and nation to the glory of your name. And as we gather around your word this morning, we're praying that you would speak to us. And Lord, we pray that our hearts would hear and believe and obey all that you have to say. And Lord, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Before we we look at our text, though, I want to take a quick survey of the room, all right? So here's what I I want you to do. I want you to take just a, a few moments, and I want you to think about your favorite lifetime memories. Now, don't overthink this, but as you look back over your life, what, what are some of those favorite memories that you have over your lifetime? You don't have to go through any details. Just pick out three or four, okay? You guys got some favorite memories? This would be the time you answer in the affirmative or negative. So let's try that. Do you guys have some favorite memories picked out? Okay, so here's what I want you to do. If some of your memories, if, if most of your memories include at least one other person, would you raise your hand? Okay, keep those hands raised. Everybody look around the room. You see that? So almost every, you can put your hands down now. Almost every single person said their favorite lifetime memories include at least one other person. Now, here's why I felt confident asking that question without knowing the answer. I did that survey this week among the people who work in our church office and with my family, and almost every single memory of every single person I asked included at least one other person. And did you know that's not a coincidence? Did you know that's because of God's design for us as people? You see, God has designed you. He's designed me to live inside of relationship. Relationship matters because relationship is God's design for your life. And whether or not you think of it in those terms, it's so ingrained in who you are as the creation of God, that when I would randomly ask a question like, what are your favorite memories, you would inherently include other people as part of your favorite parts of life, because relationship matters. And that's actually what our next short series of studies is all about. I've told you that our next book study that we'll be going verse by verse through is the book of Daniel. We'll start that study in about five or six weeks. But before we do that, I want us to spend some time looking at God's design 
for the relationships he's created to live within. And the way we're going to do this study is by walking through Colossians chapter 3. And you guys don't have to to do this now, but as you just glance through Colossians chapter 3, what you'll see is that the Apostle Paul gives really specific instructions for the various relationships that are part of our life. He talks to husbands and wives and children and parents and employees and their employers all right here in this text. And so you could see just from a glance that Colossians 3 is all about how we're called to live inside of God-honoring relationships. The lives of those around us are supposed to be a part of our life. So how do we live in a God-honoring way in all those relationships? Well, that's what this series is going to be about. Husbands, wives, children, parents, employees, employers. But this morning, what I want to show you is that when you come to Colossians chapter 3, you find that The Lord, as he teaches us about relationships, begins by laying a foundation for all the relationships we have in our life. There's one central relationship that is to serve as the foundation for all of our other relationships. It's the relationship that actually enables us to live in a God-honoring way with everyone else in our life. It's our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how Colossians chapter 3 actually begins. So look with me at Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Verse 1 says this, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of God for us this morning. And here's what I want you to know. It's the truth that's at the core of this one paragraph here at Colossians chapter 3. That's the foundation for how you are going to be able to live in God-honoring relationships with everyone in your life. So before Paul talks about marriage and parenting and how to relate to our co-workers or our employers, he starts right here by laying this foundation. And it's this core truth that I want us to see this morning in verses 1 through 4. That will set up the foundation of everything we say through the rest of this series. And so this morning is, is essential. We'll reflect on it over and over again in the rest of our time talking about relationships in the next five or six weeks. So the question becomes, what is the core truth that's right here embedded in the verses we just read? Well, look back at verse 1 and we'll just kind of take this a little bit at a time in the first four verses. First, verse one says this, if then you have been raised with Christ. Stop right there. What's Paul talking about? You've been raised with Christ. Well, here's what he's talking about. He's talking about a miracle that is at the center of Christianity. He's talking about our miraculous union with Jesus, a union with Christ that occurs when we come to believe the one and only gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to unpack that and show you how that's embedded in every other verse in this paragraph, but I want to step back for just a second and give you a quick refresher on what the gospel actually is. The gospel actually starts, even though the name gospel 
gospel, or word gospel means good news, the gospel starts with some bad news in a sense. The gospel tells us that all of us have sinned. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is failing to live up to the glorious design of God for our lives. It's disobeying and dishonoring God in any way. And the Bible is very clear. All of us have sinned. What do you think the Bible means when it says all? And it says all. It means you and me. We have all sinned against God. And here's the truth about sin. Sin has devastating consequences. Sin breaks all of our relationships, especially our relationship with God. As we approach this series on relationships, we need to know this. Every relational issue we face in our life is in some way, shape, or form the result of sin. The great problem in humanity today is a sin problem. Every relational issue you have is a sin issue on someone's part because sin breaks relationships. And the really bad news is that sin in us, all of us having sinned, sin in us breaks our relationship with God because God is perfect and holy and sinless. And what that means is since our relationship is broken with God, we are naturally separated from God, from his life and the life he, en- he designed us to enjoy. And our sin that separates us from God requires us to be punished. God is a holy and just judge. And so he has to give the just punishment for our sin. Meaning if we die in our sin... We will die in a broken relationship with God. And our broken relationship with God would result in us spending eternity separated from God, enduring his wrath over sin in a place the Bible calls hell. I know that's not a popular message in modern day America, but it's true. Hell is real, hell is forever. And hell is the destiny of those who die in their sin because God is a just and holy God. But God is not only just, he's merciful and gracious. And here's what God did in his grace and mercy. God desired to redeem people from their sin, to restore us into right relationship with him. So God graciously came up with a plan for how sinners like us could be restored in relationship with him. And here's how he did it. He sent his son, Jesus, to become one of us. And as a man, Jesus did what no other man, not you or me, could ever do. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. And as the only perfect man to ever live, Jesus obeyed the Father completely, including obeying him all the way to the point of going to the cross of Calvary to die as a payment for our sin. Jesus died in our place and at the cross of Christ, the punishment of God over our sin was poured out on Jesus. That's what Paul is actually talking about right before our text. You can look back at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14. It says this, that God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I love those words, don't you? All of your sin, all of it, as heinous as it is, as 
needing punished as it is, as much rebellion as it is, all of your sin, all of it, if you imagine, is written down on a piece of legal paper from heaven and nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ to be forgiven like a debt that's settled, forgiven by God forever. Jesus died as a payment for our sins so that our sin would no longer separate us or break our relationship with God. But the question you've got to ask is how in the world was the death of Jesus able to apply to us? I mean, I'm living 2,000 years later after the fact. How does my sin apply there to the cross and the cross to my sin? Well, here's where that miracle I talked about earlier, the union we have with Jesus, that's where it comes in. When you come to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, here's the truth of the gospel you are called to believe. God Almighty miraculously unites you to Jesus Christ, his son. That's how his death can become your death. That's how your sin could be present at the cross, punished and forgiven. By a miracle of God's power, you are able to be united to Christ in a way that his death for sin becomes our death for sin. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 3. He says, for you have died. When? With Christ at the cross. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Listen, friend, Jesus could die a death for your sin on behalf of all who trust in Jesus because a miracle occurs by faith that unites us to Jesus himself. It unites us to the death of Christ so that his death becomes our death. His punishment for sin is the punishment over our specific sin, meaning our sin debt is forgiven. It's nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Praise the Lord, right? In Jesus, we're united to the death of Christ. But listen, that truth is so embedded in this text. We need to press all the way through to the end. When Jesus died, let me give you a real quick pop quiz, church. Did Jesus stay dead? No. No, He rose again from the dead. He really did. He really did die. He really did rise again with victory over sin and death and hell and Satan and the grave. And if we are miraculously united to the death of Jesus, let me ask you this. What does that mean about his resurrection? You know what it means? It means we are also united miraculously to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? That's what Paul's referring to in verse 1. If then you, and he says this as a past tense, it's already happened for those who are trusting in Christ. You died with him. You were present at the cross. That's how your sin could be punished at the death of Jesus. That's how you could be forgiven. That's how you can be restored to God. He says, you died in verse one. He says, if then you have been, it past tense, it happened. You have been raised with Christ as well. You have been raised with Jesus. Listen to me, friend. Here's the truth of the gospel. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, this is what it means. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior, 
then you have died with Christ, allowing you to be forgiven of all your sin, and you have been raised with Christ, allowing you to live with the same exact power that raised Jesus from the dead. You hear that? That's what Paul's referring to in verse 4. When he says, when Christ, look at this phrase, who is, that's not past tense, is it? You have been buried, you have died, you have been raised, all past tense. He uses a present tense word. Who is today, right now, he is your life. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's not past tense either. That's not even present tense, is it? That's future tense. What's he mean? He means when Jesus comes back, you will be the finished product of what Jesus began at the cross. You will have died with him, your sins forgiven. You will have been raised with him in a new power to live. And when he comes again, you will be completed in glory. You'll be just like Jesus. That's your destiny because you're united to Christ and destined to be just like him. And in between the time that you come to faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, uniting you to his death and resurrection, and Jesus comes again and raises you up in glory, perfected to be just like Christ, right now, in between, in this meantime, in a sense, Christ is your life. Guys, that's the key. Since you have been united to Jesus... In every way, past, present, and future. That means Jesus lives in you and will live his life through you. Guys, the entire opening paragraph, I hope you see, is built on our miraculous union with Jesus. Past, present, future. That when you trust in him, Jesus literally becomes your life He will live in you with the same exact power he lived with on this earth and was raised up with in his resurrection. Christ is our life. It's a miracle that occurs through faith. Remember Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen to me, friend. The message of Christianity is that a miracle occurs when you trust in Jesus. A miracle occurs that unites you to Jesus Christ. A miracle that causes Jesus himself to literally live in you. That's what it means to be a Christian. And a lot of us, a lot of us were raised to believe something else. Many of us were raised to believe that Christianity is primarily about a work we do for Jesus. That's why when we ask other people about their relationship with God, most times, often, frequently in our culture, they tell you about something they did. 
I was baptized. I went to church. I went to VBS. I did this or that. I serve in this or that way. They list the works they do for Jesus. Friend, that's not biblical Christianity. That's a perversion of the good news about Christ. Christianity is not about a work we do for Jesus. Christianity is primarily about a work that Jesus will do in us and through us when we trust and depend on him in faith. That's biblical Christianity. A miraculous work that Jesus does. And I just want to ask you all a quick question. Do you... Do you believe that Jesus can work miracles? Because that's at the core, guys. For, for instance, uh, you guys probably know this story, and if you, you don't, hopefully you were here a few weeks ago, Pastor Rob preached on this. John chapter 5, Jesus is going through a city. He finds a man who's been unable to walk for 33 years. Jesus comes over to that man, and he says to this man who's unable to walk, sitting by a pool that's supposed to have healing powers, and he comes to this man, he says, do you want to be healed? And the man says, of course I do. But then he tells Jesus this, but I can't do it. I've been sitting here forever. Of course I want to be healed, but I can't make myself well. And then Jesus says, do you remember what Jesus says to him? He says this. The man says, I can't walk. And you know what Jesus says? Then rise up, take up your bed, and walk. Right? What happened next? The man got up and walked, right? I mean, he really got up and walked. He could not walk. He told Jesus he can't walk. Jesus said, get up and walk. And the guy got up and walked. You know what we call that in seminary? I don't know. I didn't go to seminary. We call that in my life a miracle. A miracle. Now, let me ask you, do you believe Jesus really did that? And that wasn't just some moral point of some story made up by the apostles, that Jesus really did that kind of miracle work? Do you believe that? Do you believe he still can do that kind of miracle work today? Well, good, because that is the point of the gospel. Just think about that. That story illustrates the truth in our text. After that man acknowledged to Jesus that he was broken and he could not fix himself, Jesus has the audacity to say, I know you can't walk. Take up your bed and walk. And that man could have responded in a lot of different ways. Jesus, I just told you, I can't take up my bed and walk. It's the whole point. I can't, why are you telling me to walk, Jesus? I can't walk. That's why I'm sitting on this ground and have been for 33 years. Why would you tell me to do that? He he could have responded just like that. But he doesn't. He says, When Jesus tells him to take up his bed and walk, that something in his heart actually happens. You know what that thing in his heart? When Jesus says, take up your bed and walk, you know what happens in that man's heart? He believes that Jesus just did something that caused him to be able to take up his bed and walk. In other words, Jesus enabled a miracle for him to be able to do something he could not do, something he knew he could not do, something he had never been able to do, to walk, right? He believed Jesus not only could do a miracle, he believed that Jesus had done a miracle. He took a step 
of faith because he believed Jesus could work in miracle power in his life. And then you know what he did next? He took another step. Literally another step of faith over and over and over again. And I'm tempted to dramatize the whole thing out on the stage, but I know it would end up in me dancing, and that's never a good thing. So I'll just leave it at that. This man believes Jesus could not only do a miracle, but that Jesus had already done a miracle in him. So he walked by faith, believing Jesus had just given power to him to do something only Jesus could do and he couldn't do for himself. That, guys, is what it's like to trust in Jesus and believe the gospel. Y'all sit in this room, and rightfully so, you say out loud, I believe Jesus can do a miracle, and I want you to know that is important when it comes to the gospel. But believing the gospel is not believing that Jesus could do a miracle. Believing the gospel is believing Jesus has already done a miracle in you. Enabling you to have the ability to live in a way that only Jesus could cause you to live. As Jesus literally lives in you. Christ is our life. That's why Colossians 2 verse 6 Right, right there before our text, says Paul, Paul says, Therefore, as you received Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How do you receive Jesus? By faith, by believing he did for you something you could not do for yourself at the cross. Well, how do you continue to live? By faith, by believing he will keep on doing something in and for you that you can't do for yourself. Namely, he will miraculously accomplish all of God's glorious promises in your life to the point that one day he will deliver you glorified before the Father fully and completely like Jesus. You'll believe to the point that Jesus will literally transform you into a creature who looks just like, acts just like, thinks just like Jesus himself. And you live looking to that day saying, Jesus, I know you're going to do it. I know you're going to do it. I know you're going to do it. It's not, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. You're not the little engine that could. All right. It's Jesus. I know you will. I know you will. I know you are. I know you will. That's the gospel. And that's why Paul says in verse two, set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on the earth. Don't live your life by looking how your life is going, by looking at the world around you. Live your life by fixing your eyes on what Jesus has established for you. Earlier in this letter, he says that you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Christ, you are with him, and he is your hope for glory. He says, set your mind on Christ. Now, listen, just think about all of that put together, that the gospel is the message of a miracle Jesus does in us by his grace, for his glory, and for our good. Just think about how when you believe that Jesus will do it, that Jesus will enable you to live in a way you can't otherwise live. Think how that impacts all of your relationships. Just think about the most important, maybe the most difficult relationships you have. The ones where you feel paralyzed like that man. I can't change it. I can't do anything about this. I'm powerless here. 
Think about those difficult relationships where for 33 years you've been living in the same dynamic and you have no reason to believe anything's going to change anytime soon. For some of you, that's your marriage. Some of you, that is with your children or your parents or your coworkers. Now, let me just ask you this. What if Jesus miraculously came into your family today? What if Jesus was the one who lived inside of all those relationships? Let me ask you this. What if Jesus was the one who was relating to your spouse? What if Jesus was the one who was raising your kids in a godless culture? What if Jesus was the one who was loving your prodigal child? What if Jesus was the one who was going to go to your workplace tomorrow and do your job? And I know some of you say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. I'll sign up for that. Guys, do you know that's the whole point? That's the whole point. That's why Paul lays this foundation at the beginning of this chapter that will end with all of those specific relationships. He's saying this. Listen, friend, if you understand this, you need to know Jesus is your life. So that means he is the one who's willing to come into your family today, to come into your co-worker's place of work tomorrow, to come into your school this fall. He's the one who's willing to come and raise your kids and love your spouse and show up at your job tomorrow. Jesus is willing to be your life in miracle working power. And that, well, that's something to celebrate when you believe in miracles. And that's our big idea for this morning. Christ in us empowers God-honoring relationships with everyone around us. Christ in us empowers God-honoring relationships with everyone around us. Just imagine with me how all of your relationships would be transformed if Jesus transformed you. Guys, that's not to say that every relationship is going to be a successful relationship because the person on the other side of that decision may not, may not love you, may not like you, may not even love Jesus or like him. They may reject Jesus. The world hated Jesus 2,000 years ago, and Jesus said they're going to hate you too. And so I'm not saying that Jesus in you will cause every successful relationship to be the story of your life. But what I'm saying is Jesus will transform you, and he'll transform every relationship around you. Guys, just think how different... That idea is when you come to relationships than the idea that most of us have when we come to relationships. Here's what I mean. When we think about approaching the relationships that are broken around us, most of us focus on this daydream that we would have if the people around us would just change. Anybody know what I'm talking about? How about I tease that one out for you a little bit and make it really uncomfortable for your ride home. Some in this room think, man, if my husband could just be more patient. And then you daydream about that wonderful new life you'd have if your husband was just more patient. Some of you think if my wife could just be more encouraging 
And you come home from work and all is well in your daydream, right? Some of you think if my parents could just be more understanding or if my kids could just be more obedient or if my boss could be more generous or if my employees could just be more diligent. We think if the relationships around us would just change by the people changing around us, our relationships would be so different. But you need to know this, friend. That's not how the gospel works. The gospel is about a work Jesus does in you. So as we start this study on relationships, how about we start in this place? What does Jesus want to do in you? Before we get to your spouse or your kids or your coworkers or your friends, what does Jesus want to do in you? Can I tell you what Jesus wants to do in you? You ready for this one? You ready? I'll tell you what he wants to do. He wants to raise you up today with a miracle that you can't imagine. He wants to raise you up in power to live a brand new kind of life. Do you know this? God wants to give your husband a new wife in you. He wants to give your wife a new husband in you. He wants to give your children a new kind of parent in you. He wants to give your parents a new kind of child in you. Christ wants to be your life. So listen, church, it really comes down to this. The question becomes, not needs to happen to the people around us for them to change in our life to get better, but what what are we willing to do to trust Jesus to change us? Like, are you willing? Here's what you need to ask about your relationships. Are you willing to die in Christ? Are you willing to die to your old pattern of living? That's breaking your relationship with your spouse. Are you willing to die today to the places in your parenting that are killing your kids? Are you willing to die? Are you willing to die with Christ and put off that old life? Or are you willing to live? Are you willing to take a step out of something you don't feel like you can do on your own simply because you believe Jesus will empower it because he's made you a brand new you? Are you willing to die? Are you willing to live? Are you willing to step one step at a time believing Jesus will do what he says he will do? That's called believing the gospel of Jesus. As a matter of fact, that's what Paul fleshes out. And I'm just going to tell you, we're going to read these verses, but I'm not going to expound on them because this will become our grid of sorts in the weeks that lie ahead as we talk about our relationships and because I know you need to get to lunch sometime today. So we're going to move through the rest of this text and I just want us to see these two places where when Christ lives in you, he begins to manifest new dynamics that affect the relationships with people in your life. Look at verse 5. It says, but put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. The first thing you see here when Jesus begins to transform you is that Jesus enables you to put off your old self. Okay, Paul describes all of these things 
that are characterizing who we are without Jesus. He calls them the old self. And there's a list of them. I'll put the list there on that screen. In verse 9, he says, put those things off. Put it off. That word, put it off, that phrase is used to describe taking off an article of clothing. It's, it's what you do when you take off your jacket, when you take off your coat. You put it off. If you're like me, you get up every morning, and the hardest decision you make all day is, what am I going to wear today, right? What, is it, what are my options for the day? And as I stand in my closet, I make my choices. You do the same thing. There are two ways that my clothes have to fit before I'm going to choose to wear them. First, they have to fit the occasion, right? I've got some clothes that I wear when I'm working in the garage, and they have oil stains and paint stains all over them. And I did not wear them this morning because they aren't fit for this occasion. And that's how it is when you're living in the power of Jesus. There are certain things that just are not fit for the occasion of Jesus living in you. But there's another way they have to fit. Not just fit the occasion, they have to fit me. I actually have two sets of clothes. I need to confess this, all right? In the past year, I've lost about 30 pounds. And I, well, well, I needed to lose it, okay? I had to go out and buy a whole new set of pants, okay? Not just one pair of pants, a whole set of pants, a whole, whole, whole shelf of pants. Because my old fit pants didn't fit me anymore. And I was really concerned about my nightmare happening here on stage one day when I preached. With those... Never mind. But you know what I did? I kept those old pants. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. Said, never know when you might need them again. I appreciate your confidence in me. You know why I kept those pants, Sarah? Because I don't trust myself in a world that still has ice cream. Right? I hang on to them. They're my just-in-case pants. Just in case, I'm just saying. I mean, but what if I believed that I was never going back into a building program that would trigger me to stress eat like a condemned prisoner? (laughs) That wasn't going to be the next five years of my life on repeat. What might I do? Can I tell you what I'd do? I'd throw them all away. I just throw them all away. I'd give them all away. And that's what Paul is calling us to do here. He says, you need to believe something about your life in Christ. These kinds of things are so unfit for you. They don't fit any occasion where Jesus is going to live in you. So throw them away. And they don't fit who you actually are in Christ. You'll never need them again. He's saying if you're in Christ and in Christ is is in you, then there are some things you're never going to need again. So kill them dead. Be done with them forever. And again, we're going to talk more about this in the weeks to come. But he says stuff like sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness and ungodly anger and obscene talk and lying, they never, ever, ever have a place in your life. And they're destroying your relationships. And they aren't who you are in Christ. So kill them dead. Be done with them forever. You never need to have those. And there are some of you who see that list and I don't need to preach on anyone you just know that they need to be out of your life for good. And here's what I'm asking you to do this morning before we move into the rest of this series. Would you just go ahead and make that a point of prayer? Would you say, Jesus, I feel paralyzed and powerless in that area. I'm angry. I'm tempted to lust. I'm covetous. 
I struggle to tell people the truth because I fear what they'll think. I struggle, I struggle. I need a miracle, Jesus. Would you help me believe you'll work a miracle in me? Would you make that a matter of your prayer today? Because when you trust in the miraculous power of Jesus, listen to me, friend, here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus is your life, and he will enable you to put every one of those things out of your life forever. Christ is your life. And it's not just putting on something off. It's, or putting something off. It's putting something on. Look at verse 12, and we'll end with this. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Jesus enables us not only to put off our old self, Jesus enables us to put on our new self. Again, We're going to talk in greater detail in the weeks to come about each of those things. But I want you to just notice how Jesus will enable you to live and think and and how that would impact your relationships. Just think about this list on the screen. Jesus will enable you to have compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. I'm going to say that again, and patience. What would happen in your marriage? What would happen in your parenting if every one of those characteristics showed up in you in Christ-like ways and measures today? What would happen with your kids or your spouse if you came home today and you, you were as compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient as Jesus is? What if you believed that Jesus would enable you to forgive your spouse or your parents or your kids or your coworkers the way he has forgiven you at his cross. Because that's part of the miracle. Jesus is promising to be your life and do exactly that. Here's what Jesus is saying to you, husband and wife and parent and child and coworker and neighbor and friend. He's saying to each one of you this morning, rise, take up your marriage, be compassionate and kind like me because I'll be compassionate and kind in you. Rise, parents, take up your children And be humble and anger-free today because I'll be humble and anger-free in you. Step into your new life. Rise and take up your parents, children. Be meek and patient today as meek and patient as I am with you because I'll be meek and patient in you. Rise, step into your new life today. Are you willing to believe Jesus for a miracle in you? That's the question hanging over all of your relationships. Will you believe Christ? Will be Christ in you? Because Christ is your life. 
Welcome to Christianity. <laughs> welcome to Jesus, church. And, hey, and welcome to the new you. Would you bow your heads and let's make our prayer. And as you respond to the truth this morning, I just want to ask, have you ever in your life placed your faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin and the power to live a brand new life? If not, right now, call on Jesus. Call on Jesus to save you, to restore you to God the Father and to give you power to live a new life. Just call on Jesus. Some of you may be stirred to make that profession of faith public in baptism. Beach baptism coming up and maybe the Lord's been stirring you in that. I know some of you recently have said, I think the Lord's stirring me in that. Maybe this morning you just make that commitment to be baptized as an expression of your new life in Christ. For those of you who are trusting in Jesus, are there specific patterns of your old life that you see in the word and you know don't belong? Right now, would you confess them and ask Jesus for his power? that you would turn your back on those things forever, starting today. And what are those things that Jesus is calling you to put on? Compassion and patience and humility, forgiveness. Will you believe Jesus and ask him, to miraculously enable you to do those things knowing you can't do them on your own. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, I just say those words, it's just so small in some ways to say thank you for the Son of God coming and being a man and living in our place, dying on our behalf and being raised a new life and then giving all that to us. Lord, it seems so small to to say thank you, but Lord, we say thank you. And Father, I ask for every broken marriage in this room, for every hurting parent or hurting child in this room, for every strained relationship at work, for every awkward interaction at school, God, for the distance we feel even with our own neighbors, Lord, I'm asking you, transform us, God. Change us to be more and more like Jesus. And Lord, let us believe today that Christ promises a miracle. And that not only can he do it, but he has done it already in us. And may may we rise up this morning, leaving this place, walking in the new life we have in Jesus. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.